COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we'll look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. On Thursday morning, Professor Luke O'Neill spoke to Pat Kenny about the latest developments from the world of science and the battle against the virus. There's big news actually just been released. They've approved the first vaccine for human use in China, if Ooh. you can believe it. So we now have the first vaccine approval in the world. Um, it's a company called CanSyn Bio. It's approved for sale to the military. They're going to give it to the military. And, and it's very interesting, in fact, because it's the first one now actually into humans, you know. And what's interesting is it's like the Oxford one. It's the same kind of technology. So, of course, yep. we'll wait now at bated breath to see what happens with these first humans that have been given the first vaccine as a real as a real preventive, you know. Now, I don't know how the military muster in China, but they're uh, certainly on the border with India at the moment. Uh, they might be the first people you'd give it to, but they are probably, you know, a lot of the time confined to barracks in close proximity. So it's actually not a bad place to go first, no. because already well, we're hearing from the United States uh, quite large numbers of the military there are infected. That's right, Pat, exactly. But, but can you imagine, we've reached a milestone, I guess, first vaccine approved for human use. Now, the worry is it's early, you know, and it's been through phase two. It, it seems to be safe. It seems they've put, they've released some of this already. It seems to go, drive a good immune response. And that now into humans, it's almost like the Chinese will use their military like like an animal in, in testing in a way, kind of, you know. But still, it'll be very valuable information for us, Mona, to see how this vaccine now performs. And you're right, the military are in places where the, vac- the virus might still be there. So we may see the first sign of a vaccine actually showing efficacy, which is very, very exciting milestone. But again, caution because, you know, it's still early days. But there you have it, the first vaccine into humans. Mm. Now, in a few moments, we'll talk about zoonotic uh, diseases, ones that jump from animals into humans, because that's where the quest for the next pandemic might be coming from. But uh, let's just uh, talk about the the topics du jour. Um, Masks on public transport and you are our guinea pig. I am. Every morning I'm obsessively counting. So this morning, Pat, there were 18 people in my carriage. Seven of them had masks, right? Now your heart sinks a little bit. But yeah. a week ago, it was maybe three or four had masks. So it's gone up slightly, but it's still only 30, 40% on the dart, you know, which isn't good enough. We've got to get to 70, 80% mask wearing, really. So let's just keep a very close eye on that one. Yeah, Dublin bus have reported, I think, 41%, about the same as you're seeing uh, on the dart. Was there reasonable spacing between the people or are the darts getting more crowded? They're more crowded. So before, they, they've cordoned off each little section, but it's one person for four seats, you see. So that's reasonable, I suppose. But you're seeing all of those being full now. So I would say it's twice the density as it was and a slight increase in mask wearing. More people, a couple of people standing again, you see by the door and so on. So they're not maintaining social distance, that's for sure. I watched for that closely as well. So people are coming within the one metre of each other. And if they're not wearing masks, we know what can happen. So we've got to get really get on this one and try to make sure there's an increase in compliance. Mm-hmm. Now, one of our researchers who doesn't uh, come from the Dublin area was remarking that there are people going on holidays from uh, where she is from, uh, the Midlands area, um, but they're not telling family and friends that they're going away on foreign holidays because they're a bit embarrassed. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a worry, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the big topic today, but I mean, there's no question it's the biggest risk we now face is travel. And Pat, remember, if we get this one wrong, the schools will not reopen in September. That's how serious it is. Because if you start to see numbers going up, 5, 10, 15, 20 here and there, you can't open the schools in places where there's spikes. That's how serious it is. So we've got to look at this extremely carefully and very, very closely, obviously. And that kind of thing will happen. The stories of 100 kids going off to Portugal to celebrate the leaving cert results, you know, and then coming back again. I mean, this kind of thing is it could be a recipe for disaster. So again, the new government, of course, but it's a great chance, by the way, for the new government to kick the tires on the testing and tracing. That has to be really good. Remember, if that's no good, spread yeah. will happen. Get the compliance on masks up as well. Really important. These things have to be in place before we consider any kind of loosening of travel. And even the famous green countries, that, that's a good idea, of course. And and we have sympathy, haven't we, with the, with the airlines? Of course we do. But this green country is a good one. But we've got to be ready for that. The timing has to be right to allow these things to happen. Otherwise, there will definitely be spikes coming into Ireland with all kinds of consequences. Now, we're told um, last evening on uh, the American news programmes that I was watching that Donald Trump is now in favour of masks. Um, and we may well see him in public. In fact, he said, and if we can find this clip, we'll play it later on in the programme, he said he kind of looks good in a mask. He, lo- he reminds himself of the Lone Ranger. Isn't that fantastic, Pat? Yes. Well, remember your phrase, masks for slow learners. This confirms that Trump is a slow learner, does it? Because it's taken him months <laughs> to get there, hasn't it? It's alarming stuff. They're ganging up on him. Yeah, the Republicans are ganging up on him. There's a whole welter of them now uh, saying, please, uh, Mr. President, will you indicate that mask wearing is a good idea, not that barefaced is macho, which is the way he had been telling it. Um, The uh, number of cases in the US, the highest number in 24 hours, 52,000 new cases in 24 hours. It's alarming, Pat. Again, we don't want to scare people up, but, you know, it's burning with a blaze now in lots of countries around the world. Over 10 million cases now, half a million deaths, and that's probably 10% of the real number. And the US is absolutely on fire, isn't it? And again, because they all they opened up far too quickly. That's, that's the absolute warning we have now, isn't it? There's the evidence you need. So it's a shocker, isn't it? Now, the question is, how do you wrestle that back under control? It's going to take them months to get these numbers down. And we know Tony Fauci is now on record, again, saying highly disturbing, you know, hundreds 100,000 cases, those kinds of numbers. And of course, any chance of bringing the US into Ireland, can you imagine as our tourists? By the way, Pat, there's a great piece in the Irish Times by my colleague, Tomás Ryan, you should read on, on the travel issue. He said, if we let the US in now, it'd be 47 infected people per day would be let loose in Ireland, that kind of number. Now, we're not suggesting the US should travel here, of course, but but again, that's the seriousness of this. They're, those countries are absolutely off limits, aren't they? It's, it's the key message there, I guess. Now, uh, the idea that you can open the schools and the primary schools uh, for the younger children, where we've already discussed, you and I, uh, about the lesser likelihood of them being infected in the first place and also uh, being spreaders, uh, that looks straightforward, perhaps. The secondary schools, one metre social distancing and uh, trying to, you know, get everyone to go to school for at least a portion of the week. Um, What do you think? Yeah, this is, it's reasonable. I mean, we've got to get the schools to reopen. But again, I think the two priorities are the travel issue, look at that closely, and get ready for the schools reopening. They're the two key things about the government I'd be focusing on, absolutely. So so the secondary school plan looks reasonable. But again, we've got to make sure the viral count is massively low, remember. 
when we get to this stage and we've got to make sure people are wearing masks and, uh, you know, uh, uh, following all the guidelines. If all those things are in place and the testing is good, then these things are possible. If that changes between now and September, that lessens the chance of those things and you need a lot more caution then, you know. So in other words, if, if we want to reopen the schools in an environment that isn't optimal, you'll have to impose certain restrictions to de- decrease risk, you see. So it's a really, it really is a complicated thing that's moving every day almost, you know. Yeah, my, my daughter Nicole made a suggestion to me a few minutes ago. Uh, she knew we'd be talking about this, and she said maybe they should introduce a buddy system in, in schools. In other words, that you're always with the same couple of pals. Yeah, yeah very so that sensible. Whether yeah. you're doing geography or science or whatever it is, that you stay with the same number of people, uh, the same people all the time, so only three get it instead of 23 getting it. That's a great idea. And it's just the bubble. The, the New Zealand had this, this bubble idea. You, you're on a little bubble. You know, you have pe- maybe three or four or five people that are in your bubble and you stick with them all the time. That's right. They'll just spread in that group if something happens. You know, that's a great suggestion. That's the, they, they should be looking at those kind of things. Again, to decrease risk. It's all about measures that decrease risk of spread. Now, you, you know, the European Union has opened up to 19 different uh, countries. We were invited to join, but we could only join that group as long as uh, the UK joined as well. But looking at the stats from the UK, the infection rate in Leicester 140 times greater than that in southern England. And Boris Johnson about to give, it is said, 95 countries the green light for travel. Yeah, I know. It's, 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 see, the trouble is it's very complicated about it in the sense. I mean, different regions, different levels of infection. How do you control it? Who do you let in and out? I mean, this is going to be really... It isn't going to be a simple case of let all these countries, you know, travel between each other. It can't be as simple as that because of that kind of regional thing you see. So now remember, it's not as simple as Europe opening up, by the way. Different countries have different rules. Greece is insisting on testing on arrival, for example, still, I believe. So in other words, it's a, it's a complicated issue, isn't it, in many ways? And hence, hence, we need to really look at all these things very closely. Now, there's a, a worrying story uh, from a, a father, uh, and his son was uh, named Louis O'Neill. He's 24, fit and healthy uh, football coach, and he's died not of COVID-19, but of deep vein thrombosis. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what we're learning, Pat, in a way. I mean, you see, the trouble with this is that, that it, there's a, a case there to be made to keep moving. One worry was if people stay home too much and then they're in their bed or whatever it might be, there's a risk of deep vein thrombosis. and everything. Like, remember the long-haul flights? People yeah. got the DVTs because so they were sitting this, in a seat um, all day, you know? This poor fellow would stay up all night playing video games and, yep. you know, not moving. That's right, exactly. And the blood, the blood will pool then in, 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 the, in the veins, you know, and begin to clot. I mean, this has been known as a condition for a long time. And, and sadly, it turns out that one consequence of lockdown and one consequence of people not getting out as much and not taking exercise is an increase in deep vein thrombosis, even in younger people. So it's, a, it's an important one, that part, because it tells people, keep moving. Don't, don't be staying still all the time. It's obvious in a sense. But then the trouble is more people are taking less exercise and they, they're, they're less out and about. So that's an important one to keep reminding people to keep active. Now, we wanted to talk about these zoonotic uh, diseases and um, you drew my attention to a World Health Organization meeting that uh, put together in February 2018 a list of diseases that posed big public health risks. And obviously we would know some of them like Ebola and SARS, uh, Zika, remember the big thing about Zika, but also disease X. What was disease X? This is incredible stuff happening away. Now, again, when we discuss this, people will see the frustration among virologists and scientists. Basically, in 2018, WHO and other organizations released a big report. They said Ebola, as you say, is a risk. There's going to be disease X, they said. It'll be more deadly than flu 
highly transmissible. It will come from animals, that will, the ones we're encroaching on, by the way, you know, and we, we can see where we're headed with this one. It'll leave economic and social devastation in its wake. And it was called disease X. We now call that COVID-19. So that, it was so prescient, that prediction from 2018. And in fact, as far back as 2006, Pat, they were warning about coronaviruses jumping into humans in a much more aggressive way. Now, People say, oh, the little boy cried wolf. Where's the evidence? Look what's happened. I mean, it's almost prophetic, that report, Pat, in terms of what they describe. And it's a WHO, a great organization, again, remember, which Trump decides to leave. So they did They did put the warning very clearly out there to watch for this. And then they also suggested how we could mitigate against this happening, you see. And now, of course, everybody's now reading that report. So it's a really important one to look at. Hmm. This guy, um, he's a disease ecologist, Peter Dazak. And uh, he said, you know, you've got to prepare. And then he referring to what's going on at the moment, he says um, this, what we're seeing now, a panic that's designed to slow the spread of the disease, closing down economies and so on. This, he observed, Riley, is not a plan. Yeah, so yeah. what 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 is the plan? I mean, what could you do? Yes, I mean, that's a great phrase, but he, he said what's happened is not is not a plan, it's panic mode, and it's true, isn't it? And of course, he was part of this WHO, and in fact, I, I spoke to him the other day, but if you can believe it, I was, I was on a conference call on Wednesday with a few people. They're bringing the veterinarians together with the biomedical people now, and, and, in groups, and we had a big conference on Wednesday, because the veterinarians have seen coronaviruses in domestic animals like pigs and sheep, and then it, Peter does, like, is the bat expert, you know, so he's, and, and his voice is now being listened to, basically, so so he he's drawn up a very elaborate plan, and this was done in 2018 by the way they said look we've got to go into the wild and find these viruses so if you like it's like you're like a virus hunter i suppose is the way to think of it and then see where the next one might come from and then prepare for it in other words don't just have a panic mode response you've got a coherent plan to hunt down these viruses and try and find them ahead of time and prepare for them you see and now a big plan is now it's called the virus the the virome genus uh, genome project they want to get try and find every virus that's out there in the wild and it's a big task pat by the way uh, inevitably, they're looking for money. Four billion dollars, they're saying it'll cost to do it properly. But contrast that to the trillions knocked off the world economy. In other words, if this, if this had been done in 2018, there's a good chance we wouldn't be where we are now. So this big plan is now being drawn up to stop another one happening, I guess, is the idea. And, and they want to check blood samples of people who would be in danger areas, like those people who live in areas where bats are carrying coronavirus and there are other animals carrying other things and the pig industry, you know, they jump easily enough from pigs to us. So you keep on looking at pig farmers and bat eaters yep. and all the rest of it and uh, keep monitoring their blood and yeah. you might catch the one before it jumps or exactly. spreads. Yeah, there's two legs to the stool, if, if that's the way to put it. The first is hunt down the viruses and get the number of viruses. They reckon there's at least 700,000 of these, by the way, per coronaviruses in animals, that they're based on a smaller sample. You know, they did try to do this, by the way, a little bit, and they got a kind of a loose estimate. That, that's the total number, roughly, that we're looking to try to find. And then you're right, it's called the Global Immunological Observatory. You go into these places, look at the farmers. I mean, one big one, Pat, is did you know there are bat guano farmers? Can you believe it? They go into the bat caves and they take out all the bat guano. It's great fertilizer, by the way. You measure their blood the whole time and just see if there's any hint of any new antibodies being made, a new virus emerging in their blood, you see. So these are the two things that are proposing that should be set up now, you see, to to prepare us, given that the propensity for these coronaviruses to jump from animals like bats is very clear from from COVID-19. 
Now, uh, the money will hopefully be forthcoming. The longer the pandemic goes on, of course, the more likely it is that people will cough up the money. What about the vaccine and getting it to poor countries? Because no point in developed countries all being free of the virus, but then migrant workers coming in and other people, you know, doing business in countries where the virus is rampant and returning home to developed countries. So everybody's got to get the vaccine. Yeah, this is a WHO now, Pat, is so important because that's the organisation historically that looks at the whole world, basically, and especially the developing world. And it's been you know very vocal over, over decades. They're now coordinating a massive plan to get loads of money in the coffers to buy the vaccine to give to the developing world. Isn't that brilliant? And of course, it has to be part of the solution because there's no point in us eliminating the virus from Europe if it's burning furiously in a developing country, is there? Because it can still come back to us. That's, that's the self-interest part. Whatever about trying to save these people dying in these countries. So they, they, they're looking for $18 billion initially. And lo and behold, they're getting it, Pat. They've raised about $5 billion already. Some of this is coming from philanthropy. Um, organized, like Bill Gates, of course, is involved, organization called Gavi, another one called CEPI. These are backed by governments. And lo and behold, the money's now coming into the coffers. And they want to get two billion doses of vaccine. And whenever the vaccine emerges, that is the next thing, by the way. But but should the vaccine emerge, and let's hope it does, they're going to, they're going to stockpile two billion doses just for the developing world. AstraZeneca Pat, are putting up $750 million towards this fund. Isn't that tremendous? So so it looks like they're going to get there. It's great. And as you say, we have to vaccinate these countries. It's extremely important that we provide the vaccine to these countries where the virus is most is most common. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the people living on the dumps in Brazil or in the Philippines, you know, talk about Petri dishes for infection. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the the other Petri dish for infection we all thought might have been all those Black Lives Matter protests. But the science says otherwise. Well, this is an absolute fascination. And again, can, as I said before, we're learning every day, aren't we, about this? So. So the, it's good news in this one, Pat, actually, because the Black Lives Matter protest was a real concern, as we discussed before. You know, something like, I think, 100,000 people were gathering, uh, you know, close contact, apparently, risk of spread, tear gas being used, arrest, arresting people, putting them into the you know, back, back of uh, police vans and so on. And now it turns out they weren't super spreading events. And it was surprising because they thought that they might be, you see. But it turns out there's hardly any evidence that those protests gave rise to spreading of the virus. And what's good is, Pat, they think they know why. First of all, mask wearing was high, which is fantastic, isn't it? There was a good compliance. Not not every one, of course, but many of them had a high mask rate of wearing. Uh, social distancing, they tried to maintain that. And, of course, they're outdoors, you see. So, so in other words, they were organised very well, basically, and that mitigated against then them being super spreading events. So it was a good study in many ways. Mm. Um, we don't have any data from the Tulsa uh, indoor rally that President Trump organised. Now, they have been cancelling events uh, because I think the, the reality is hitting home big time in the United States. But uh, whether, given that the people travelled from all over the place to Tulsa, yep. might be hard to spot whether that rally actually gave rise to clusters and surges. It, it might be. But there you have the opposite scenario. But again, talk about the contrast. Indoors. Huge crowds of people shouting and roaring and no masks, you know, so it'd be interesting to see what happens. They're looking at, they know, I mean, they can track all those people, many of them, because they registered online and stuff, you know, to go. So they can see now how many of those got infected. But you're right, it might be hard to unravel. The the one on the Black Lives Matter was amazing study, but it was 315 uh, protests were looked at very closely. 100,000 people were monitored. So they knew they knew then really good data there. There were 10,000 arrests, by the way, Pat, at those Black Lives Matter protests overall. Very few of those got infected, again, because I guess of the measure 
measures that were adopted. So it really is a compare and contrast, isn't it? So let's see what happens with the, the Tulsa numbers yeah. now. And now, that's a statistical thing. And, and you also observe that some people would be scared of going out in the streets when the Black Lives Matters protests were going on. So if you look at broadly at the population, yeah. uh, the people staying home, not uh, the shops closing, all of those things can feed into that stat. So still a yeah. bit more delving into it to be done. Yeah, that was a key part. They did show that less people went into the city centres then because they wanted to, because they were frightened of going in because of the protests. There were more roadblocks, you see, to stop people going in. That's a very important part of this. It wasn't just the protesters, I guess, you know, following all the guidelines. It's a mix of things, I guess, you know, the, of trying to observe the guidelines and then less crowds overall, if you know what I mean. So, so those combined to sort of uh, mitigate against the, the Black Lives Matter protests being super spreading events. Now, uh, some of the comments coming in. Uh, I'm a bus user. Uh, I use a mask. But what about the drivers? Every bus I've been on this week, no driver was wearing a mask. The only good yeah, thing is that they're, they're behind. Well, they're behind screens. You see, so that's yeah. uh, so, so that's not too bad because they're actually in the yeah, bubble. Yeah, but they're in the environment they? for I don't know what their working day is, uh, yeah. eight hours or whatever. And a lot of people coming in talk about mixing up of the units and the, all the air that yeah. they breathe. Another, I don't know, this person has texted me, the virus does not travel through the air, so what good is a mask from George? George oh, my Lord. Listening to us. Is it traveling through the water, Pat? <laughs> where, where the person thinks the virus I, I, is coming from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a, a spread by uh, coughing and breathing and so on. Um, this one. So I can't go to Spain on holiday, but anyone from the UK is allowed in on planes and ferries unconditionally. Where's the logic in this? This is the idea that we can't go out. But other people, particularly those in the UK, cross Superb. the border or cross the sea. They come in. So. Yeah, superb point. I mean, I mean, it's, but you see, the thing is, it's, it's a very complicated thing in a way. And, and every country is slightly different. And how are we monitoring different things? That's a really good example of inconsistency, isn't it? You know, so hence, as I said already, get on this travel thing. Look at it really closely with great detail. Bring the experts in and try to figure out the best way to proceed. Because as I say, it's the biggest risk we face. Yeah, another one uh, remarking on that. Uh, the measures on community and schools would not be necessary if they closed off travel. We need to stop the virus in the community. People are off to Spain, and then on the other hand, kids will have to put up with crazy rules here. Something very wrong in that logic. Another one. Precisely. Let me see. As a parent, have I got this correct? Pupils will congregate in large groups before school, during lunch break and after school with no social distancing, as they've been doing for the last number of weeks. However, according to newly appointed Minister Ed Foley, one metre social distancing will not be necessary among very young kids. However, with slightly older pupils, uh, one metre uh, distancing will be required from third class up. Then all secondary school students and teachers will be required to socially distance. This means one metre spacing between all desks at a minimum. Then there's the possibility of pods which would see small groups of students grouped together at a time and each pod would stay one metre from all other pods. Good God is the minister yeah, for yeah. real. I'm confused already and I've only got one child attending school. Then to put the cherry on the cake, no person, child teacher or parent should attend an educational setting if unwell or if any members of their household are unwell with symptoms consistent with COVID-19. The minister won't have to worry about social distancing in the classroom as there'll be no one there once the winter sniffles hit. Let the pupils yeah. go back to school as normal and ask teachers to wear full PPE problem solved. Well, well, like that's, they're very good points. But after, and remember, if, if our go, if, if our mission here is to get the virus down to almost nothing before schools reopen in our country, then then many of these worries go away. You see, and you can then you know adapt to that new world in a way. If that happens, it'll be fantastic, and that's got to be the goal overall. 
That was Professor Luke O'Neill speaking to Pat Kenny on Thursday. Coming up next, we'll hear from the Dublin Airport Authority on the rise in the number of flights in recent days. Welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beattie. On Wednesday evening, Paul O'Kane, the Chief Communications Officer at the Dublin Airport Authority, joined Ivan Yates with an update on the number of flights leaving the airport over the past week. It was um, it was busier today than it's been for for a while, and um, it, it wasn't day one as you referenced earlier before the outbreak. As much as we've actually been opened right through the lockdown in, in line with government guidelines to facilitate cargo flights and and repatriation flights. So what, what we've seen over the past couple of months has been a steady and a gradual um, increase in traffic, albeit off a very very low base, Ivan. So if you look, say. Back in April, passenger numbers in, in, in Dublin Airport were down 99%. In May, down 98%. As you moved into June, passenger numbers were down about 97% for the last year. And in the last, uh, sort of the tail end of June, we got up to about 96% compared to last year. But you, you, you saw a significant jump today in terms of the, of the flight numbers, because earlier in the week, we had about 100 flights to and from Dublin Airport. And with that big Ryanair expansion that you referenced today, that's gone up to about 200 flights. But on a normal day at this time of the year, we'd have about 800 flights in and out of the airport. So it's still, given what we normally had, would normally have, it's still a, a very low level of traffic. Although obviously it's a it's a it's a jump compared to what we had earlier uh, this this month. Now, last Thursday night, the government suggested air bridges to particular countries with something that would meet with approval, and people have said Denmark and Finland and Greece, where the level of COVID nineteen is uh, similar to our own. Is there any pattern emerging in terms of people uh, wanting to travel to destinations, an awareness of the level of COVID in countries, in terms of both the airlines and the passengers' preference? It's very difficult for us to, to, to predict that because it's funny. Ordinarily, we'd have a very high level of insight into passenger behaviour because we survey passengers at the airport. But obviously, due to COVID-19, we've had to suspend all of those face-to-face surveys. One of the things we have done, we have done a bit of market research and we found that in, in, in recent weeks, we found that the market has segmented in a way that you might expect. So younger people are quite keen to fly. There is a pent-up demand amongst the young younger people. When you get to middle-aged fellows like myself who are married with children, there's a bit more caution. And then if you get into uh, an older age group, and, and this is completely understandable given the way that COVID has affected the population, when you get into an older age group, obviously the, the desire to travel is, is much less. And one of the interesting things we found from that research was one of the key motivating factors in people's willingness to travel. You might presume that it might be a kind of a bucket and spade trip away, but actually it isn't. It's visiting friends and relations. So sometimes I think we forget that we have so many people living here that have um, friends and relations overseas. And obviously, um, and that's both Irish people who have emigrated abroad. And then, of course, we have a huge amount of new Irish that have friends and, uh, and family living overseas also. That's a that's a big driver. And we saw that. Um, I, I was out, uh, When I was at the airport today, I was watching people press doing some box pops with passengers. And, and you could see that was a trend amongst some of the passengers they were talking to there. And they'd either come home to visit friends and family here or they were heading off to visit Now, now, now Paul, uh, the DAA were contributors to the Aviation Task Force, which called for the lifting of various restrictions on the 1st of July. Could I put it to you that there is a huge gulf between what Neffed, Tony Holohan, Philip Nolan are saying and what the aviation industry say they need? And could I put it to you 
that there is an absolute lack of political courage and leadership to fill that vacuum. And this has resulted into the disaster of no refunds. Like, if the government feels so strongly about backing NEFED, then surely they should ban these flights. Like, at the moment, the the public are simply the meat and the sandwich here between NEFED and the aviation industry while the government sits on their hands. In relation to the aviation uh, task force, we we are one of a number of members of that task force, uh, and the task force, as you say, had recommended that um, the government uh, re- uh, really, uh, relax some of the restrictions by July the 1st. Last week, the government announced that it was planning to um, relax its restrictions and that it was going to announce some of our corridors between Ireland and, and certain other countries that had low levels. And it would make that announcement um, by July the 9th. But we haven't had any firm details on that. I mean, ultimately, as, a, as the task force, we were consulted on our view. Um, and the government makes the decision here in terms of travel policies. They set the travel policies for COVID as they have from the outset, and we've followed those policies. So ultimately, the government will make the decision. But but you're completely right in as much as it's a terrible position that consumers have been put in. Consumers, for most people, particularly people who are travelling in July and August, um, your family holiday or your holiday, if you're travelling in July and August, you're travelling in the peak summer months, you're paying uh, peak prices. That's pr- Unless you bought a house or a car this year, your summer holiday is probably the biggest thing you buy during the year. Um, and people are being left in a really difficult position because they're not sure whether they should fly or not fly. They're not sure if their travel insurance is going to cover them. They're not sure if they then if they decide not to fly, whether or not the airlines are going to refund them. It's a very, very... And also, there's, as you say, they're, they're seeing mixed messages on the one hand but, from... But, the, but there's another context to this, which is EASA, uh, the international and the European authorities have set out a protocol. Can you say that when people land in this country in terms of the form, in terms of the testing and tracing, that it is a safe protocol to land in Dublin Airport? Well, in terms of the the, the system, um, in terms of the quarantine and the self-isolation system, that's a government uh, regulation which is currently in place in terms of everyone who arrives in Dublin Airport or indeed any other airport in the state or at any of our ports has to fill in the passenger locator form, which is a government form. They hand that to an immigration officer and then there's a there's a follow-up process in terms of self-isolation. So there are systems in place and these are decisions that governments make. Uh, right throughout uh, Europe and indeed in other European countries, they are deciding to open up um, to travel on a, on a limited basis. As you say, there is a, there is a, a set of COVID-19 guidelines that were developed by the European Union Aviation Safety Agency in partnership with the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. And we have those guidelines. And indeed, we're following those guidelines very largely uh, at Dublin and Cork airports. And we've been investing very heavily to make sure we can make our passengers feel safe and secure when they travel through the airports. If you look at Dublin Airport, for example, we have 960 hand sanitizers. We have uh, more than 620 plexiglass screens at all close contact points, so at check-in, at boarding gates, at security. And then we have about 10,000 signs around the the campus in terms of social distancing and hand hand hygiene. So we've closed off seats in boarding gate areas to, to maintain social distancing. We've closed off tables in in our restaurants and there are signs as you go into the lift to say how many people should inhabit that lift or should enter the lift rather okay. and then even even as far as washrooms Ivan if you go into a bathroom at the airport now you know if you're standing washing your hands uh, at a sink the next sink to you will be closed off so we you can enable social distancing so we're working right. really hard 
to make people feel safe and secure if they do decide to travel, because obviously that's a personal decision. That was Paul O'Kane of the DAA speaking to Ivan. Coming up next, the new Minister for Health gives his take on the confusion around travel advice. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. On Thursday morning, the newly appointed Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, spoke to Shane Coleman on News Talk Breakfast about a lot of confusion relating to travel advice. Well, if there is, we need to we need to clarify it uh, very very quickly. What what I absolutely accept, Shane, is that this is a really pressing issue for people. There's people who have booked holidays last year who've been waiting all. All year, who've been in lockdown thinking, okay, look, we can deal with this, but then we're going to get away for two weeks to the sun. So these restrictions are very, very serious for an awful lot of people. And obviously, they're very serious for the business community as well. So the first thing I'd like to say is we are looking at this very carefully and very urgently. The Taoiseach and I met with the Chief Medical Officer on Monday and other officials. Nefet, the Public Health Emergency Team, they're discussing it today. I'll be sitting down with the Chief Medical Officer after that. There's a Cabinet subcommittee on it tomorrow and a recommendation will be brought for discussion at Cabinet on Monday. So we're we're taking it very, very seriously and if there is confusion, it, it needs to be cleared up. Uh, to be it, blunt, to be advi- blunt, Minister, yeah. can I just ask you: Will you will you be singing off the, the same hymn sheet next Monday? Uh, as who? As Tony Holland, because it would appear to people that Tony Holland was singing from a different hymn sheet earlier in the week. No, I, I don't think that's the case at all. T- Tony Holland is the chief medical officer, and oh yeah, sorry, I'm not saying he did that wrong. I'm not suggesting he did that wrong. I'm just saying his you know, position seemed not. to be know, a bit no, different. No, I know you're not. But, but, but I'm saying where there may be differences, there, there, there's not an issue with that. Tony, Tony Hoolan's job as the chief medical officer is to give the public health advice. And I think you, I, and everyone else would agree he has done an extraordinary job right, right from the start yeah. of this. It's the job of, of, of government, it's the job of cabinet, the job of the Oireachtas to consider the entirety of uh, the implications, obviously. So, so, so th- they're, they're the roles. Now, what the chief medical officer has continuously expressed and reiterated again this week was a very serious concern about the risk of a second wave of COVID if there is a big increase in, in foreign travel. And the public health advice has remained absolutely steady on this. And all he did this week was reiterate that. And the current advice is against all non-essential overseas travel. The reason uh, I believe he was reiterating it this week was because the situation has become more volatile internationally. So, for example, we now have 10 million cases globally. Over a million of them globally have happened just in the last week. Yeah, yeah, and there's an issue there. Absolutely. Look, um, uh, time is tight here and there's loads of things I want to ask you. Can can I just run through uh, some very quick issues, which if that's okay. Some talk this week or some suggestions are called for a fund, uh, a state fund for 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 people who decide not to travel because of advice from the likes of Tony Holland and and do not get refunded by airlines uh, because the flights are taking off. Is that something that government would consider? Well, I think everything can be considered, but I, I'm certainly not in a position to give any indication as to, as to what might happen. 
Um, but but everyone is aware that there are people who will have booked in, in good faith um, yeah. and who may be losing money. And I think everything has to be looked at, but there's there has been no decision made. Uh, and I have been involved in no discussion okay. with colleagues as to, as to how that okay. may or may not work. All right. Um, Roisin Shorter earlier on the programme called for legalised quarantine of people coming in. When the green routes are announced, if people are coming from countries not on those green routes, red routes, if you want to use that term, that they should be put in quarantine for two weeks in a hotel, legalised quarantine uh, near near airports. What's your take well, on first that? Of all, well, first of all, let's not jump the gun. So no decision has been made as to what restrictions may or may not be relaxed. If they are relaxed, to what extent, with what countries, uh, and with what public health safety measures around it. My sense is that... To date, we have done incredibly well as a country following the advice of the public health officials. They have steered us well. Yeah. And as a country, Shane, we have done incredibly well. Like our, our rate is now, by European standards, is, is well below the average. The average is about um, 14, or sorry, 12 cases per 100,000 people in the last 14 days. We're at less than three. We've been steered very well, and by and large, it has not required legal enforcement. People understand how serious it is. People understand that we need to reopen the economy. We need to get the schools open. We need to get the healthcare facilities back up and running. So in the first instance, I, I... I don't believe that would be would be necessary. I don't believe it would be okay. likely. People so far have done an incredible job okay. In, okay. in working together on this. Okay, now that's a comprehensive answer. Uh, it just can I ask you just briefly in relation to schools? We had that those um, preliminary guidelines uh, yesterday. Uh, look, it's looking I think pretty good for primary schools and lots of imaginative ideas there in, in terms of getting all the kids back. Secondary school looks like more of a challenge. At this stage, is it looking like some form of blended learning is probably inevitable, that kids will be back in school in September, but just because of the one metre rule, it's going to be very difficult to have everybody there all of the time? Well, certainly it's good news on primary schools. And I, I say that with a slight smile on my face as, uh, as the dad of <laughs> yeah. three, three primary school children. Yeah. So, uh, all all minor and secondary minister. That's why I'm more interested <laughs> okay. in secondary. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, primary, primary, question, is, primary is good news. There's no doubt about that. It, it is. In the secondary schools, what needs to, so what has been published yesterday is the guidelines. And what will happen now is that uh, Minister Foley uh, will meet with the, the different stakeholders and, and listen very carefully and come up with an implementation plan. So what, what will happen now is uh, people within the schools, the unions, the officials, the school principals, I've no doubt, will be looking at these recommendations and saying, well, how do they apply in my school? You know, maybe I have a, a beautiful modern school and actually it's got a lot of space and we have some overflow classrooms we could deploy. So maybe we can do it in one way. Or maybe I'm in a much smaller school and it's an older school and I don't have a lot of teachers uh, and we might have to do things in a different way. So so now the important thing is to listen to the stakeholders, listen to the teachers, listen to the representatives, listen to the school principals, uh, engage with uh, the officials and and find out how we can open up as much as possible. Okay. The goal, obviously, is that every student will, would be able to go back. In secondary schools, of course, it is more complex because the students are moving to different classrooms. They have to be in specialist classrooms and so forth. Is it fair to sum it up as saying students will be back in September, but in, with secondary school, there are challenges there, perhaps in relation to having them there all of the time. Is that a fair summation of the current situation? 
I think that is fair with the with the caveat that an awful lot of work will be done now yeah, to look at no how we get as many back as possible. Okay, two very quick questions before I let you go, Minister. Uh, obviously, health spending has had to be ratcheted up pretty dramatically over the last three months. Uh, supplementary budget, uh, is, are they being finalised? How much health is going to require uh, between now and the end of the year? We don't know yet, Shane. On uh, Tuesday, I uh, asked the doll for an additional €2 billion, Euro, which uh, the doll uh, passed, which I was very grateful for. That €2 billion Euro was just to deal with de- COVID decisions taken to date. There is an enormous amount of work to be done to understand the final cost. And there's a lot of uncertainty. So, for example, as per foreign travel, uh, the chief medical officer is concerned that a lot of foreign travel could lead to a very serious spike and potentially a big second wave. Were that to happen, it would have huge consequences for spending in, in healthcare, yeah, obviously. Okay. So, so we're not sure yet. But the but the priority right now, the, the healthcare system and everyone working in it has done an, an extraordinary job. I, I, I think we'd all accept um, in responding to, to, to the surge. Okay. We don't know what's going to happen, but the focus now has to be on the resumption of the non-COVID services. And the, the, the cold, hard reality is that is going to require additional spending. OK, uh, just before you go, you, you spoke, I think, quite uh, quite movingly at the start about what an honour and quite genuinely about what an honour it was to become uh, a, a minister. Were you surprised that uh, some people decided to turn down that, that honour yesterday? Well, can I just say on a, on a personal level, I... I think so we're talking about Jim O'Callaghan. I presume. Well, n- not just Jim. I mean, there was. I think there was. There was certainly three people. I think from from memory okay. who do turn down relatively senior roles. Not not perhaps as senior as the role you have, but but senior roles to serve as as ministers or assistant whips. Well, certainly in, in Jim's case, I, I apologies. I don't have the details for for, for who else did, but. I've worked very closely with him. He's a he's a very serious uh, and experienced and capable parliamentarian. So he, he said he, he he plans to do an awful lot of good work from um, from the back benches for rebuilding the party. I, I've no doubt he will. I think he would have had an awful lot to add to government. So on a personal level, I, I am disappointed, but I've no doubt he's making the right decision for um, for himself and, and what he wants to do and contribute to politics in the next few years. That was Minister Stephen Donnelly speaking to Shane Coleman on Thursday morning. On Thursday afternoon, Professor Sam McConkie gave his view of the advice around travelling abroad to Kira Kelly on Lunchtime Live. I, I think lar- largely it's no uh, I, I strongly agree with uh, Tony Houlihan's uh, consistent advice. And I think people have to look at where do we get our information from. And the Department of Foreign Affairs have a website that tells us very clearly about travel abroad. And that clearly says no uh, no to non-essential travel. So if someone's you know mother dies in Milan or in Spain and they feel quite rightly or even very sick that they should be at their mother's side when they're, they're passing away, I, I can understand that people should uh, travel in that situation, but that's exceptional okay. uh, emergency travel. But, but the idea of going on your summer holidays to somewhere, uh, you know, like Florida or California or Germany, where there's been outbreaks of this, uh, even unfortunately, we don't know Portugal, we thought was okay a few weeks ago, but now the numbers are going up. And that's been a consistent message from uh, Tony Houlihan and from the Department of Foreign Affairs all the way along. Uh, and, and I know we heard this word staycation. <laughs> Heather Humphrey's come up with this staycation word. Um, which is encouraging all of us, um, you know, who want to go on holidays and drive us to go to the Wild Atlantic Way or the Ireland's ancient east or, or the Midlands and and enjoy time off in our in our own country.
Yeah, uh, I, I hate to disabuse you. Heather Humphreys did not come up with that. That's a long, that's a long-held word that's been used by the young people, Sam, for a long time. But what do you think of what Jack Lambert said? Jack Lambert, who was also an infectious disease specialist in the matter, he he was on Morning Ireland yesterday, and he said uh, the economic consequences are everyone's losing. And he says he disagrees with Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tony Holohan. Uh, I think we should go with the best ex- expert opinion. I'm not suggesting opening borders and do nothing. I'm calling on them to come up with a plan, the same as the rest of the world. And then he said uh, going to Slovenia or Greece might be safer than going to any other city in Ireland. So so the I, this idea of, of air corridors where we would go to parts of Spain or parts, of, you know, like the Balearics or the Canaries or, you know, Greece or somewhere like that. Is 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 that a no? So in theory, in theory, that plan makes sort of theoretical sense. Yes. The problem is that the places that are really safe are places like New Zealand and Wuhan in China, where there's almost no transmission. New Zealand, they won't let you in unless you have a New Zealand passport. And even if you have a New Zealand passport, you have to do 14 days in quarantine to get into New Zealand. And similarly, China, you have to do 14 days in quarantine, and they're very restrictive on who gets in. So my point is that the places that would be very safe to go to aren't allowing us in and are very far away and not places we normally go on holidays. No. So the sort of places we usually go, like Portugal, for example, unfortunately is not as 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 safe as you might think. And the risk is not just the airline travel. It's not the time you're in the airplane. It's unfortunately picking up something from all the people in the bars and restaurants and socialising that you're doing on your holidays from all the other travellers from all over the other parts of the world that have come to be on holiday in that place and, and acquiring it being well on your return to Ireland, but then in an incubation time, uh, bringing it back, as we had people from Cheltenham, from Northern Italy, from skiing back in February, March. I think if we were living through February and March 2020 in Ireland again, our public policy would be different. We would have asked all of those folk travelling from England from, from soccer matches there and, and, and from Cheltenham and, and from Milan and, and Italy to be two weeks in South Carolina. And, and, that would have and, and we should have. And and there was, some of us said it at the time too. But here's the question for you. I, I, I'm not arguing with any of the, the very yeah. valid points you're making about this. But the difficulty that people have, many of whom booked holidays a long time ago or some of whom booked holidays more recently because there was sort of talks about air corridors and you know Europe was open and from the 15th of June hotels were open in in, you know Spain they lifted uh, travel restrictions between countries and mainland Europe and all of that was happening so people have booked holidays if the government really really wants to back Dr. Tony Hullohan and Neffet, if they want to back them, all they have to do is ban the flights so that the flights are cancelled and then people will get their money back. They'll get their yeah. their their hotel, maybe not, but but if you can cancel an awful lot of hotels and things up until the last minute, but they'll get their flights, etc. back. At the moment, people, in fairness, maybe due to political cowardice, Sam, are kind of caught because there are lots of people who are booked to go on these flights and the flights are going out. Yeah. I don't and, think it's political cowardice. I think it's actually really, we've had very unique experience now. We've actually kept our open borders all the way through this. While every other country in Europe has closed their borders to people coming in and out from even neighbouring traditional countries, we've actually had open airports and open ports at all the time. That's partly because we're a small little island nation who trade and need some travel for business and need, as we described earlier, non-essential travel for humanitarian reasons for many of us who have loved ones in other countries. So to me, that's been a consistent keep the airport open, keep the planes free to fly if the companies are willing and open to fly them. So uh, we have not ever, even in the dire straits of this in, in London, 
banned a flight from London you, landing in Ireland. Do you see what I'm saying? We're kind of using shame in a way. We're kind of putting pressure on people's so, social pressure. Don't go on holidays. You're, you're, you're behaving badly. You're not taking one for the team. But yeah. we're asking those people, some of them to lose hundreds or thousands of euros personally. Yeah. If we really don't want them to go, like, like when we had the, the, the start of all of this, we wanted everyone to stay home. What did we do? Yeah. We gave them all 350 euros a week in order to yeah. make them stay home. Should we not be saying we or, or if you don't want to ban the flights because, as you say, you want to keep the open borders to some yeah. extent, why don't we say, well, the government will reimburse you for this and that'll make you stay yeah. home? Because a lot of people will travel rather than lose their money. So without wanting to sort of avoid controversy, as a sort of medical doctor with my health hat on, I, I'm not really going to get involved in that who pays whom and, yeah. and the financial okay. recompensation. I feel that's a legitimate public discussion between tourists who book flights to places when the Department of Foreign Affairs explicitly said no non-essential travel uh, and, and, and the government who may or may not want to use public money to reimburse people who book flights despite that being clearly displayed and clearly articulated by the Department of Foreign Affairs. And I know they were maybe misled by the airline industry saying that the flights they may were going to fly. Been, or indeed some I think did book old, you know, previously longer ago. I think Some people may have booked back before February and that, that's of course uh, a problem that you know all of our lives have been turned upside down and our finances are... are you know, people had some people have investment in in uh, cruise ships, for example. The cruise ship industry is doing very that, badly that right se- now. That seems like a very bad investment from this side of the pandemic. <laughs> Can I ask you a last question, Sam? Um, Leo Varadkar has said he believes that mandatory quarantine—the idea that people would be put into the airport hotels and those kinds of ideas—you know, because the current looser form of quarantine is is not really a quarantine at all. He says he thinks it's unworkable. Do you agree? Um, I would much prefer that we could have. Uh, as we call it, policing by consent, and that by giving strong guidelines to all incoming travellers to self-isolate for 14 days, I would hope that we could get 95, 98% adherence and compliance with that. It's only this morning that we're now seeing some evidence and data that we're getting only half the people um, answering their telephone, which doesn't bode well. I would like to see a study of a couple of hundred of those folk with actually going to the address that they've stated and seeing are they there and if you're getting high rates of adherence with voluntary uh, self-isolation then of course that's much better this idea of using a strong arm of the law when you don't need to is not proportionate for us but if we're not getting that high levels then I think we do need to take a a more robust uh, house arrest visit every day from the Gardaí, are you there? In other countries, they've used your phone as a tracking device. Now, I know there's legal issues around that, but our phones have a GPS in them. We're and you, and have, no, exactly you have no worries at all, Sam, about the kind of civil liberties aspect of all this. Because let me, let, me, let me put this to you. This is a text that's come in for you, uh, for Sam. Many of the most vocal medical voices on the issue of travel have an extreme agenda, which is to eliminate COVID at any cost. That includes the cost of prolonged international isolation, though they never explain how we'll get out of it, and compulsory 14-day quarantines for anyone foolish enough to come here. We need moderate voices in this debate. The intervention of Jack Lambert yesterday saying we need to get back to some kind of normal was welcome. Like we saw what they did in in, they, they moved towards elimination in, in New Zealand yeah. and, and good on them and they got there and then it all unravelled again and, and is not the situation going to be here as well we might uh, move towards elim- elimination but trying to maintain it at all costs we'll pay a very high price I, for that I think with good testing and, and, and contact tracing and 
one one message to the public is if you've got any symptoms, if you've got any headache, fever, runny nose, cough or fever, go to the call your GP really quickly. So don't be waiting four or five days as typical Irish people we do, but but call really quickly. And there are loads of testing capacity out there and we can get you tested and get your contacts traced. So I, I feel the advantage of getting the, the extreme elimination is that then our creches would be up and running. We all remember uh, six, eight weeks ago how struggled the creches were to get going again, even just for healthcare workers. And well, it seems a bit mad going. that there's any talk of social distancing in creches, Sam, when, when under third class in school it's been abandoned for. I'm not sure that creches exactly. won't, won't start to kick up a fuss about that. Exactly. So all these problems of our primary school children and our secondary school children and creches all getting up and running are solved immediately once you've got at that elimination phase. And if we don't get education up and going, then again, our national future is really jeopardised. So it solves a lot of problems, like the whole education sector has basically been paralysed, as we all know, for five or six months. And even the roadmap for getting everyone back in September is still very unclear and very challenging and, and very difficult. And it's possible now, if we don't start until September, only half the kids will be back in school in September. That's, that's more or less a, a disaster for our younger generation. So these are the sort of reasons why we're pushing for elimination, because then the New Zealand, like New Zealand, the the children are back at school with no anxiety, no problems, just essentially back to how they were before. That was Professor Sam McConkey speaking to Kira Kelly on Thursday. And that's all we have time for this week. We'll continue to bring you up to date with all the latest relating to COVID-19 here on News Talk. You can subscribe to this podcast on Go Loud or wherever you get your podcast from. But from me, Shane Beatty, bye bye, take care and have a great week.